Ron Liebman and Tim Baker are former assistant U.S. attorneys who were part of the prosecution team that brought down Vice President Spiro Agnew on October the 10th, 1973. On that day, he appeared before the federal court in Baltimore and pleaded no contest to one felony charge, tax evasion for the year 1967. Messrs. Ron Liebman and Tim Baker tell us about their role as the case unfolded. Agnew was fined $10,000 and placed on three years unsupervised probation. This conversation was originally recorded in 2019. Ron Liebman, when did you first meet Spiro Agnew? Well, I never actually met Spiro Agnew. I've seen Spiro Agnew twice in my life. The first time was on October 10, 1973, sitting next to Tim Baker and uh, Barney Skolnick in a federal court in Maryland when he entered to plead nullo contendere to a tax felony charge. The second time I saw him was a few days later. There's a restaurant in Baltimore called Sabatino's, and everybody ate there. And I was sitting there with my young bride uh, at a table for two facing each other, and I looked up, and coming towards me from the back room, having had his own dinner, was Spiro Agnew and his wife and some security. And I was trying to get my wife's attention, and I was going, <clears throat> and she's saying, what, are you all right? And Agnew walked up to me, stopped, looked at me, and passed. And those are the only two times I've ever seen him. Do you think he knew who you were? Yeah, I think so. Our names, our pictures had been in the paper. Uh, I think, I, and we were in court. He certainly stopped. Maybe he thought I was someone else. Tim Baker, who was Spiro Agnew, and when did you first meet him? The only time I was ever around him at all was the October 10th, 1973, in the courtroom in the federal courthouse in Baltimore. I was never anywhere near him. Uh, he had been. Um, he was vice president, of course. Um, he, before that, he'd been governor of Maryland, and before that, he'd been the county executive of Baltimore County, which is how we happened upon him, because... We were conducting a federal grand jury investigation of his successor, Dale Anderson, and with no idea whatsoever that we were, it never entered our heads that we were going to encounter Agnew. Um, uh, but we did. Let's come up to speed by seeing what he looked like and what he sounded like. He did a famous speech in Des Moines, Iowa, right after he became vice president on November the 13th. It was actually several months after that, but... Talking about the news media and the three networks in New York City, let's watch Spiro Agnew. The purpose of my remarks tonight is to focus your attention on this little group of men who not only enjoy a right of instant rebuttal to every presidential address, but more importantly, wield a free hand in selecting, presenting, and interpreting the great issues in our nation. The American people would rightly not tolerate this concentration of power in government. Is it not fair and relevant to question its concentration in the hands of a tiny enclosed fraternity of privileged men elected by no one and enjoying a monopoly sanctioned and licensed by government? The views of a majority of this fraternity do not, and I repeat, not represent the views of America. That was in 1969. When did you start to investigate him? Well, we started our investigation, as Tim said, with a notion that what we would uncover 
and prosecute were um, bribery and extortion, extortionate activities involving zoning uh, cases where a developer would pay off a county commissioner to change a residential area to a commercial area so he could he or she could build something. Um, we started our investigation in uh, the spring, I think it was. January. January. January 1972. And with, as Tim said, without any notion that this investigation, and indeed as quickly as it did, would get to uh, uh, Agnew, who was then vice president of the United States. What was your job then? We were each uh, assistant United States attorneys with the, the third guy, Barney Skolnick, was also an assistant. And our boss was the U.S. attorney, George Bell. Your job. Same. Um, Tim and I and Barney had known each other for a while. Uh, we were, Tim and I were both uh, law clerks uh, for a federal judge, Tim for a court of appeals judge. I was a law clerk for a district court trial judge. We were in the same federal courthouse. Um, before I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office, Barney and Tim uh, had a prosecutorial team that prosecuted um, a businessman and a county commissioner for uh, bribery. And I was an associate in the law firm. I was working for a trial lawyer, and we defended uh, one of those two defendants, the businessman. Uh, then I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and um, soon thereafter, uh, I joined Barney and Tim in this newly formed team, the, uh, the objective of which was to look for corruption, uh, principally in Baltimore County, Maryland. How old were you two? I was 30 in 1972, 31 the next year when Agnew uh, resigned and entered his plea. I was 29. I turned 30 on October 11, 1973, the day after Agnew entered his Nolo contendery plea. Barney was a year or two older than yeah, uh, just a little bit, and and he had two, three, four years more prosecutive experience. When I first came to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the summer of 1971, I was immediately assigned to Barney, and we immediately began to prepare for trial. And the case that Ron was talking about, we tried the guy who was in effect the county executive for another Maryland county, Prince George's County. In, 19, in 2003, your boss at the time, who was 35 at the time, George Bell. Two, 1970, not two, 2003. 2003 is when he gave this speech. Right, right. And, and, and he kind of summarized what you all went through. Let's watch, George Bell's deceased now. You can talk about him in a minute, but let's watch what, some of what he had to say in front of the Frostburg University where he talked about this case. So does Mr. Matz uh, cooperate? came in and told us his story, um, I, was, I, I was absolutely stunned, of course, because uh, um, I, I, like everyone else, I think, in the, in the country, thought that the vice president was the pillar of rectitude. He was a very, he was a tall, imposing, handsome, uh, well-spoken, um, um, strong individual who, who, who spoke not just eloquently, but passionately about principles and morality and that sort of thing, and uh, sounded very persuasive. And I was absolutely flabbergasted when Mr. Matz told us that there was another side um, to the vice president. George Bell, what, how did you all interact? interact? Uh, uh, as 
Tim mentioned a moment ago, George Bell was the consummate United States attorney. He was the hands down the best boss I ever had. He was a gentleman. He was smart. He took his job uh, very seriously. He was from a very prominent Republican family. His father had been a senator. His brother at the time was a senator from Maryland. He was terrific, just terrific, what, all the way through. What I would say about George is, uh, of his many remarkable qualities, was a complete lack of vanity. He had pride, deservedly had pride, but no vanity. He, he, and, and frankly, he was dealing with uh, three assistants who um, had very high opinions of themselves and very high opinions of their opinions and were very forceful in articulating them. And George was never bothered about that. He was perfectly fine to let us have our say and, and often went with what we thought we ought to be doing. Um, and as Ron said, he, he, was, he was an excellent U.S. attorney, almost a paradigm example of how a U.S. attorney ought to handle himself. Lester Matz he talked about. Who was he? What impact did he have on this whole case? Well, Lester Matz was a uh, uh, consulting engineer who uh, had a, a firm that did a lot of public work. And uh, in Maryland at the time, there was a system, uh, a system of graft. If you were qualified and you could do good work and you wanted your fair share of the work, you had to pay for it. And Lester Matz uh, was one of the people who paid uh, Spiro Agnew directly. As I recall it, someone had explained to Agnew, and we, we of course heard this third hand uh, early on in his political career, that you should have a bag man. You shouldn't take directly. Don't take money, illicit money, directly from anyone who wants to do business with a government entity. Have a bag man. That way you can insulate yourself and you have deniability. And indeed, uh, Spiro Agnew had a bagman. In fact, he had two bagmen. Uh, but he was also, um, he was careless. If someone approached him with enough money to take directly, he took directly too. And Lester Matz was one of those. Let's go back to George Bell, more from his speech, talking about this situation. Mr. Matz uh, was the one who said that beginning in 1962, he had been paying Mr. Agnew on a regular basis um, from the time Mr. Agnew was the Baltimore County executive right through the time he was governor and conclusively right up until January of 1969 when he visited the vice president in the White House in the vice president's office and he said he handed the vice president a white envelope with $10,000 in cash in it and uh, said, you know, this is, this is money I owe you from contracts that uh, you gave us while you were governor of Maryland. I want to, I had our bookkeeper run the accounts and, you know, I'm now fully paid up and I hope that going forward we'll have more federal work. Uh, and the vice president, you know, slid back, pulled out the drawer in his desk and uh, accepted the envelope, put it in, the, in his desk and they talked about yeah. Sports. Tim Baker, how did you work on this project together, the group of you? Well, we all had um, somewhat different responsibilities. Barney was the leader of the team, by far the most experienced uh, prosecutor, and I would have to say also the best. Um, I think he was one of the very best in the country. So he was the leader. I was sort of the 
chief of staff. I was uh, the guy who kept everything organized, the IRS agents, the the grand jury, the witnesses, uh, and also um, played a role as a sort of, in a way, sort of the general counsel for the team. And Ron was a, was, had, had had defense lawyer experience, and so we counted on him to to constantly look at the what we the evidence we were gathering from potential defendants' point of view, uh, and keep us alert to the the minefield that we would be working in. Where was your office lo- physically located, and when was the first crack in this case? We were uh, the U.S. Attorney's office was located in the federal courthouse in Baltimore. The old federal courthouse is a more recent one uh, in existence now, and I remember exactly, uh, precisely when I first heard anything about Agnew being involved. And really, it involves Tim Baker. I was in Barney Skolnick's office. Tim had been on the phone in his own office, I guess, with, uh, I think it was Lester Matz's lawyer. Lester Matz's lawyer uh, was a very able, uh, very decent fellow, very able lawyer, and he had known for some time that through his client, through a privileged communication, that his client had bribed the vice president of the United States. And I think it was eating this lawyer alive. Tim had had a conversation with this lawyer. And Tim, I may not have this exactly, uh, precisely correct, but this lawyer said something to Tim along the lines of, you know, you don't even want to know. You wouldn't want to know what there is out there. Something that my very uh, smart colleague and friend quickly determined was a reference to Agnew. And I remember Tim coming into Barney's office, telling us about that call, and Barney and I exchanging looks saying, nah, nah, that's, that's, that's too wild. Tim was absolutely right. Tim, before you expound more on that, what was the atmosphere in the country at that time in Washington, D.C., when all this was going on? Well, Watergate was front-page news in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and other newspapers around every day. And uh, the, the circle was tightening around President Nixon. It still had a long way to go, but um, the special prosecutor, uh, Archibald Cox, was his um, uh, team was, was uh, rigorously investigating the Watergate matter. Um, and there was a great deal of tension in, in Washington around was Nixon going to end up being impeached? What was was he, was he guilty of the cover up? Uh, the in, at least in the spring of 1972, that kind of um, that had, actually that hadn't even started in the spring because Watergate doesn't start until July of 72. Right. I'm thinking ahead to, eight, to 73. So okay, he resigned on October the 10th, 1973. Three. So what was the date that you first found out, and what was your reaction? That was in May of 1973, when the defense lawyer for Matz says to me, we're trying to get Matz to cooperate against Dale Anderson, who he did pay off Anderson. Anderson was the, the was, executive. was Agnew's successor as county executive in Baltimore County. And the lawyer says to me, well, how much do you want to know? How, are, are you really willing to do anything with what else Lester Matz can tell you? And um, I said, yes, we we can. We are very interested in it. And then I went in and told Barney and Ron that we knew what it had to be. In fact, I think we were already very suspicious of Agnew ever since Agnew tried to get Kleindienst to shut the investigation down in in January. At least I was. Um, Who was Kleindienst? He was the attorney general before Elliot Richardson. And 
in Jan- we began our investigation in January 1972, and at the time, Agnew was on a highly publicized tour of the Far East. But as soon as he came back to Washington, Matz and others went running to him saying, you've got to stop this investigation. And Agnew immediately went to, to paid a personal visit to Kleindienst at the Department of Justice and said he had to stop this investigation. It was a political witch hunt. He complained bitterly about it. And Kleindienst called George Bell and said, uh, George, what's going on here? And George was surprised because we weren't investigating Agnew. We were investigating a Democrat who was the county executive in Baltimore County. So, okay, the team, the three of you, and then George Bell, the boss, did you ever sit around the office in those early days and say, what are we going to do with this? Uh, No, I mean, we... We, we took our jobs seriously, young, that we, young guys that we were, young lawyers that we were, we were. We were following the money. We were following the case. We were building a case. If it ended with, uh, with Dale Anderson, it ended with Dale Anderson. If it went on to uh, other uh, public officials in higher office, we were going to pursue that and did. In that time period, in 1973, did anybody in the public, other than you folks up close and the lawyers know about Spiro Agnew being involved in taking money? Not until... Was uh, it in the press er, at all? Early August of 1973, a reporter for the Wall Street Journal broke the story. Uh, And I can't think of his name. Jerry Landauer. Yes, absolutely. And where he got it, it didn't get it from us. Uh, I'm guessing he got it from uh, witnesses of ours who... uh, there were reporters all over our investigation at that point, but nobody was getting any information about Agnew until Jerry Landauer came up with it. What did you all want to do next then in that process? Move even faster because the, we knew that, okay, this is the, the press scrutiny now was going to become intense and it was going to make our, uh, our investigation much more difficult because we were going to be constantly distracted by all kinds of accusations against us and all kinds of attention. But we had most of the evidence in hand at that point. I suppose the only thing we still didn't have was our IRS net worth investigation, which in which we would prove uh, we had witnesses who said they paid Agnew. What the IRS investigation would show was that Agnew spent uh, substantial sums in hundred dollar bills. That is, we show the money going in the net worth investigation would show it coming out. But let me go back to uh, just make this point. How many times do you think over a period of a number of years that Spiro Agnew, vice president of the United States, prior to that governor of Maryland, prior to that the executive in uh, Baltimore County, took cash money in hand? Multiple times. Uh, he uh, and uh, others like him, including Marvin Mandel, whom we also wound up prosecuting. Governor of Maryland. Governor of Maryland. Didn't create this system. They inherited it. It was there. And that's the way they functioned. Uh, I think Agnew took bribes from from his uh, Baltimore County days all the way through uh, to that uh, episode that George Bell just spoke about where uh, he has a an envelope stuffed with $10,000 in cash that he hands over to the vice president of the United States, whose office at the time was in the White House. As you all sat there in Baltimore, you had a grand jury. Where was the grand jury meeting? It met in a room in the federal courthouse. In Baltimore? Yes. And who went before that? Did you all? 
We, and grand juries are, are led, are, are, are organized by prosecutors. We would bring witnesses into the grand jury room and have them take the oath and testify in front of the grand jury, and we would be the ones asking them questions. We would be the ones deciding what witnesses to bring in and um, how to present the evidence. How many times did you bring somebody in front of the grand jury that related to Vice President Agnew? Oh, multiple times. And who were the others besides Lester Matz? Well, there was another, there was a bagman named Bud Hammerman, who at the time was a very successful, wealthy businessman, who was Agnew's principal bagman. There was a guy named Green, I can't remember. Alan Green. Alan Green, a second bagman. Uh, and there were others who had paid. And Jerry Wolf. Jerry Wolf, a, 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 another consulting engineer. Or well, he was also chairman of the State Roads Commission, in which capacity he acted as Agnew's bagman keeping 50% of the bribes on state roads contracts for himself and passing on 50% of the bribes to Agnew. Part of the reason to talk about this is what's obviously uh, going on in Washington right now, grand juries and lawyers and people testifying against people in office and all that. Going back to that time period, did it ever leak out the kind of people that were coming in front of your grand jury? Well, the press was... Richard Cohen, I remember in particular, but other members of the press. Washington Post. Yes, Washington Post. Were, were very cl- good and very clever at, fi- at figuring out who our witnesses must be and then getting them to talk to the, to, to the press. Uh, uh, they're very clever about how they do that. It's not dishonest or devious or anything, but they get witnesses to say much more than the witnesses are even realized they're saying. Uh, I know at some point, I think we had reporters assigned to each of us. There was a New York Times reporter whose name was Salpukas, Aegis Salpukas, I think was his name, who I lived, uh, my wife and I uh, lived not more than three blocks from the federal courthouse in downtown Baltimore. And I would get to my apartment and a phone would ring and it would be this New York Times reporter that would say, you're home now. So there was a lot of press scrutiny, and also uh, the, the concerns that we had, as Tim uh, articulated a few moments ago, uh, actually occurred. They took after us. You know, Agnew's lawyers um, went after us um, as a group and individually, and they were alleging that we were uh, leaking information to the press, which was untrue. So it was it was a uh, an a time span that was really very tight. It was a matter of months from beginning to end, but it was intense. We found this video. Of, it's a man named Martin London, yeah. uh, who was a Democrat then, but was approached to represent Vice President Agnew. This is an interview from 2017, not that long ago, with a, a man named Jim Zurin at uh, CUNY TV up in New York. Let's watch this. Partner Jay Topkis called me up and he said, Marty, I've just had a fascinating telephone call. I said, what's that? He says, well, some guy called me up and he said, Mr. Topkis, can you come to Washington to uh, uh, meet a new client we'd like you to represent? And uh, he's a very important person. And uh, Topkis says, oh, uh, is he a congressman? And the guy says, hire. Uh, he says, I can't mention his name. Uh, he says, a senator? He says, hire. He says, Oh, my God, a cabinet member? He says, hire. He said, oh, my God, you mean the president? And the guy says, eh, not quite so high. <laughs> so we rep- I said to Jay, Jay said, Marty, is there any reason we shouldn't represent the vice president of the United States who is facing a bribery charge? And I said, are we going to get paid for this? He mm-hmm. said, yeah. I said, then there's no reason we shouldn't represent. Do you know that man, Tim Baker? 
No. Did you know any of uh, Vice President Agnew's lawyers? Not at the time. And how I, many I never did he was... have around him when it got close to the copying the plea? I had dealings with him later on, a couple of years later on, in completely different matters when I was in private practice, but I didn't know them at all during the Agnew matter. As you were going through this, did you keep notes about this experience? I didn't keep a diary. Uh, I did make notes. Lord knows where they are, probably in my attic somewhere. Um, I think, you know, were we aware of the significance of what was going on? Sure. But at the same time, you know, we were working day and night. There wasn't that much time, speaking for myself, to sort of sit back and reflect on this. Uh, it was very intense. And, you know, we, I must say this, we did a great job. We nailed that guy. We put an airtight case together. And that took a lot of work. Us, the, uh, the IRS agents who, uh, who worked for us, and, of course, George Bell, who supervised us. Here's some more of George Bell and that speech in 2003. His response was, this is awful, but, you know, I was the United States attorney for Massachusetts um, many years ago. And he said, I had a similar situation involving highway contractors and pavers in Massachusetts. And he said, this was the late 1950s. And he said he, would, he asked for permission of the incoming administration to stay on as United States Attorney to pursue that investigation. And his permission was denied by the Kennedy administration, and he had to leave his job. And the incoming United States Attorney uh, didn't, didn't pursue that particular investigation. So the, the United States the Attorney General, Mr. Richardson's response right away was, you know, this is something that is, that is deplorable, regrettable, intolerable as far as government is concerned. Um, and uh, you do what you have to do. Uh, I will, you will talk personally to me, uh, and I will be personally in charge of this. Should have said he's talking about Elliot Richardson, was from Massachusetts, was the attorney general there, came down. U.S. attorney. Yeah, but he was also attorney general of Massachusetts. But he came down here and became, he was the secretary of defense. He was the head of HEW. He uh, ends up at the Justice Department. And did you guys ever meet him? Oh, yes. We spent hours with him. Would you Ours. like to tell the story of the Audi and the four of you all coming down back from Baltimore to Washington and the first time that George Bell ever felt he could go to well, Elliot Richardson? Well, U.S. attorneys are very independent, uh, unusually so in the federal system. But if you're going to investigate somebody, uh, a major federal official in Washington, you need to report to the, 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 to the department. And in this case, we knew we had to tell the attorney general and we kept making appointments to come over and tell him. We were afraid of leaks, so we wouldn't tell his secretary what it was about. And the appointments kept being canceled at the last moment. And finally, we, on July 3rd, I think we were yeah, supposed to right. go over there, and we had an appointment. We got a call saying the appointment was canceled, <laughs> and we just went anyway. We just showed up, and we sat in the waiting room until finally Richardson uh, uh, agreed to see us. And, and, and that's when we first told him about the case we had against Agnew. And at that point, the case was already really strong. We had a number of witnesses. Did he know anything at that time? No. You, you referenced the Audi. That was George Bell's car. And the four of us uh, on that particular occasion, but others as well, because we went to the Justice Department to meet with uh, Elliot Richardson and his 
uh, staff uh, frequently. Uh, we kept game planning uh, how we're going to handle this because the Attorney General is in the middle of Watergate. He has no idea that the Vice President is now going to be uh, um, uh, also a part of a, a potential prosecution. And we, want, we were also, quite frankly, concerned that we would make our presentation and the Attorney General would say to us, great, thanks so much. He'd pat us on the head. These young guys from Baltimore said, leave your files and uh, uh, have a good trip home. And so we are in the uh, U.S. Attorney's, uh, the Attorney General's conference room. Uh, Tim was the guy who was going to make the presentation uh, after introductions. And he, Tim starts making this presentation of our case. And periodically, someone comes into, his secretary comes into, or his assistant, to Elliot Richardson's chair, whispers something, and he gets up and he goes and disappears for a while. Um, and then he would come back and we'd begin, begin again. We didn't know till later that actually it was uh, the president, uh, President Nixon, who was on the, some of those calls, and I think Alexander Haig on some of the others, complaining about something. And here we're trying to get to this point where we're going to lay this big, fat egg uh, on the attorney general's desk and Tim is making this presentation in his usual um, complete, uh, effective way. And finally, we get to the point where we tell the Attorney General that this is all about the Vice President. And that's the part where, uh, on this uh, clip you showed, uh, George Bell and, and the rest of us were waiting to see what, he was, what the Attorney General was going to say. I remember I was sitting at my seat at the table across from a bust of Oliver Wendell Holmes staring at me. And I remember thinking, you know, pinch, pinch myself. Here I am. What's going to happen? And that's when the Attorney General said, you know, I was a U.S. attorney in Massachusetts. How do you guys want to handle this case? And made it very clear to us that this was going to remain our case, and he and his staff was going to be involved as well. What's your when, memory? When we were worried, uh, we were always worried, not that Elliot Richardson would... would shut down our investigation. Well, we, we had a very high opinion of him. We knew he had a, a experience as a prosecutor himself. Um, we, what we were worried about was he would look at us and say, you guys are too young for this. What we, what, this has got to be taken over by prosecutors in the Department of Justice who are much more experienced than you. So we wanted to make the best possible presentation, give the best possible impression of ourselves. Uh, we actually thought we were... We thought we were pretty hot stuff. We thought we were good. Barney, in particular, had had really substantial. He'd convicted a congressman, um, and also we knew we had a hell of a case. And if we laid out what we had accomplished already, how much evidence we'd put together, we thought he, we hoped he would let us remain the prosecutors on the case. And I don't think there was ever any question in, in Mr. Richardson's mind. That, that he was going to take the case away from us. Sure, he was going to supervise us, but uh, and he and we had any number of long sessions with him in which we went over details, and particularly when the plea bargaining began. He kept us apprised of every step. Um, he had us over to Washington for long meetings in which we debated back and forth what kind of plea ought to be accepted, and he he always heard us out on the merits. He never once said, Baker, you're a... 31-year-old kid. I'm the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, shut up. He, he always 
listened and responded on the merits, always. It, it was an amazing experience for the three of us, uh, the four of us, including, including George, of course. It was an extraordinary experience. Did you feel at the time that you could indict the vice president? We believe that we could indict the vice president. We believe that he was not immune from prosecution while in office. And in fact, his lawyers, uh, among the defensive positions they took was that, that, that he couldn't be prosecuted, that he was cloaked with immunity. And uh, they made that request to the Justice Department and the Solicitor General at the time, Robert Bork, um, wrote uh, an opinion uh, summarizing it, uh, uh, as I will, saying the President of the United States is immune from prosecution for crimes committed while in office, while in office, but the Vice President can be indicted while in office. What was your reaction to that? Well, I thought it was a very persuasive opinion, and in any event, we were absolutely determined to nail this guy. Uh, he was a the, the extent of the corruption was really amazing. He, of all the people we prosecuted in Maryland for mm -hmm. corruption, and there were a lot of them, he was far and away the worst. And here he was right in the line of succession. One, one point we ought to make here is how fortunate we were and the country was that Elliot Richardson was the attorney general deciding this. Supposing it had been John Mitchell, who himself was corrupt and went to prison for cover-up. How soon after that did Elliot Richardson resign because he was asked to fire the special prosecutor? Two weeks. The Ten Saturday days. night massacre was yeah. two weeks later, right? Ten days, maybe. Ten days, maybe. Within two weeks. Saturday night massacre, yeah. Go back to the way you were prosecuting among yourselves this case. What kind of leverage did you have at the time that you were going in for the plea bargain? In other words, how many different cases were there where you could pull somebody in to testify against the vice president? We had a complete, comprehensive case. We had nailed down every part of the case. We had witnesses. The witnesses, were their testimony was corroborated. We had these amazing IRS agents who had put together this third-party network case that Tim referred to earlier, where we traced the money going to the vice president, these bribes and extortionate payments, and we followed the money to, sh to show uh, both with witnesses and with documents that he got the money and what he did with the money. It was, there, a, it was a complete case. In the we, end, go ahead. We, we had a number of witnesses. Um, I would say at least a dozen witnesses who nailed Agnew directly. And then we had all the backup of documents, corroborating witnesses, this was a very strong case. How much did President Richard Nixon know, and we were right in the middle of the Watergate hearings and all that at that time, about Agnew? I do remember, uh, we, we, we were uh, aware that uh, the president, at least for a period of time, was unaware of our meeting with, meetings with Elliot Richardson. And I remember a meeting we all attended, not in the conference room, but in Elliot Richardson's executive office, where the subject came up, uh, you know, Mr. Richardson, have you told the president yet? And he said, no, I haven't. Uh, what do you think we should do? And we talked about Richardson uh, at the right time going over to the White House, meeting with the president and letting him know that his vice president was now the subject of a uh, serious criminal investigation. Do you know what his reaction was? 
The president's? president? Yeah. No, I don't. I, I do know that uh, that it was one of the wonderful things about Mr. Richardson was he did tell us about these things, but this was something on which I don't think he really asked our opinion. This was, to, to put it mildly, above our pay grade. Um, and um, But he did inform us about it. He kept us informed at every step. Did you ever get one of his doodles? Oh, you bet. I still have them framed. I have mine too. What was he doodling about? Well, I mean, he was, he was known for this. But when you, what kind of doodles did he do when you were talking to him? He, well, when we first talked to him, the very first time, he, he was very impatient with us because we, we were, first of all, laying out our credentials because to us the most important thing was to make sure that he had confidence in us. So he doodled then. But as soon as I started laying out the evidence, the doodling stopped and he started taking notes. I do remember one argument we were having about the vice president's fate and uh, Richardson would often doodle in circles, but this one he was doing straight lines, very rigid lines. And when the meeting was over, um, I turned to one of Elliot Richardson's two senior administrative officials, a guy named J.T. Smith, and I said, could I have that? And J.T. said, well, I don't know, and he took it and he put it in an envelope, and the next meeting, Richardson gave it to me with a nice note to Ron Liebman, except saying very nice things about me, and it was that doodle, and I still have it. It's faded a bit, because unfortunately, Elliot Richardson used magic markers, and nothing more uh, delible, but I still have it. He would, he would um, sometimes he'd get, I guess he didn't like his doodle, so he'd crumple it up and throw it in the wastebasket. As soon as the meeting was over, we all would die for the wastebasket to retrieve these doodles. Spiro Agnew died in 1996 on September the 17th, but 16 years earlier, he gave this interview. You have to listen closely as to what the accusation is. This was done out in Los Angeles. I didn't know what General Haig meant when he said anything may be in the offing. Things may get nasty and dirty. All I knew was that he tried on five separate occasions in two months to force my resignation. I think then that there were men around Richard Nixon, either in the White House staff or in the official mechanism of the CIA, who were capable of killing a vice president of the United States if they felt he was an embarrassment. I don't doubt that at all. Do you think he really felt any threat of being killed by the CIA? What he felt was a threat of going to prison. He was terrified of going to prison. That's what drove the whole, that was his whole impetus um, for accepting some kind of a deal with us. In the end, how much money did he actually take? Oh, I don't think I remember. I don't there was know. a lawsuit brought by John Danzaff and his students for $265,000 that he ended up paying back. That would be about right. Yeah, I, it was a substantial sum. This is in the 1970s and the 60s, I guess. Uh, that sounds about right, but I don't But why don't wasn't he either. asked? I mean, in the end, what was... Tell us the end uh, event that you all were in the courtroom when it happened. Well, uh, we knew why we were going into court. It, you know, a, a, a plea bargain had been uh, arrived at. The judge who was handling the case had blessed it. But um, the day the case was scheduled for this uh, plea... Um, no one else knew. And in fact, the, the gallery was filled with reporters because they were there. There had been, uh, Agnew's lawyers had subpoenaed uh, reporters uh, to try and get them under oath. 
and to question them about who their sources were for these, these leaked stories. So the, the, the gallery is filled with reporters and their lawyers who think that this is going to be uh, litigated, whether or not these depositions could go forward. Of course, we knew. We had our, we had our wives. We called our wives to get down here right away. Uh, uh, the courtroom, uh, the judge uh, got on the bench. Court w- was brought into session. And the judge said to this group, um, the courtroom's going to be locked for this proceeding. So if any of you have to leave, leave now. And then um, in came the vice president, uh, and he went to uh, the defendant's table and sat there or stood there with his lawyers. Just before that, he had resigned his office because there was this issue of, you know, if he resigned as vice president, uh, would that raise issues involving immunity? So there was this... um, minuet that we had created where he resigned, came into court, pled, and that was that. We had been up all night the night before writing what turned out to be a 40-page summary of all the evidence, a detailed summary of all the evidence against Agnew, which was presented in court the next day and filed as a part of the, of the court proceedings. And although Agnew pled to uh, Nolo Contendere to filing a false tax return, the falsity of the tax return was that he didn't report all of the kickbacks and bribes that he had taken as detailed in that 40-page statement. And the next day, that 40-page statement was reprinted in its entirety, word for word, in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, the Baltimore Sun, and God knows how many other uh, uh, newspapers around the country. As you know, though, uh, there are a lot of people wanting him to go to prison. Oh, including <laughs> including people sitting right here. Yeah. Well, tell us that background story. And Well, that was, you know, uh, that was the gravamen of this whole thing. Agnew didn't want to go to jail, and he had this get-out-of-jail-free card. What was that? Uh, this is Watergate. Um, Richard Nixon was a walking dead man, politically speaking. It was only a matter of time, most everybody understood, before he would be forced out of office. That would make Spiro Agnew, this vice president who we have under investigation, president. Uh, Can you imagine how the country would would react? Uh, President Nixon, a crook, leaves office. Vice President Agnew, become, a crook, becomes president. Uh, so he had this, um, uh, this get-out-of-jail-free card. And, and Tim, Barney, and I, for the longest time, felt very strongly that Spiro Agnew should be treated like any other American citizen who committed a crime like this. And we had very heated discussions with Elliot Richardson, with uh, the Deputy Attorney General Don Rucklesshouse, uh, with the head of the criminal William Ruckenshaus, William William. sorry, Ruckenshaus, with the head of the criminal division, Henry Peterson, Henry Peterson, and um, we From, didn't we didn't have the the I guess the maturity to see what Elliot Richardson realized early on and convinced us of through this long series of debates and arguments, and that is that it was more important for the country for Agnew to be out of the line of succession than whether or not he went to jail. What did George Bell want your boss? George, um, he wasn't, uh, he led us to most of the arguing. I don't remember George um, 
taking a strong position. He certainly didn't disagree with us, but he let the three of us um, carry the argument that Agnew ought to go to jail. Barney kept making the argument that he didn't want the American people to see that somebody in high office walked away, that the same rules would apply to a very important public official that applied to to ordinary people. Um, I agreed with that. I know Ron did. I also just thought this is a really bad guy and he belongs in prison and it grated that he wasn't going to go there. But Richardson was so impressive. I believe that very first time we met with him, when we told him what we had, I think from the even then that he, he, the, he realized that the most important thing was to get this guy out of the line of succession. That was sort of the first thought. I can't remember his words, but he articulated something about how important that was, and he never wavered and, and never should have. Given the nature of what we have in Washington, D.C. right now, the discussion going on around the president, this remark from George Bell back in 2003 has, has some reason to watch. The months of August and September, well, as far as the public was concerned, was, was, a, was a, a kind of a kabuki dance of the president at expressing support of his vice president and the vice president going on television and making speeches about his innocence and attacking the prosecutors. And finally, in, in Los Angeles, at a, at a, the, the vice president publicly attacked um, the Department of Justice. And, um, I, and I, I'm told that uh, it was at that point that uh, President Nixon threw emissaries and said, you know, out. You know, you, you, you can't be doing this to our government. You can't be publicly maligning uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, you know, you're going to have to come up with an exit strategy. What is your reaction to that, given what you know about today's activities? Well, um, and I think what, that what do you actually think of Richard Nixon suggesting that you can't attack the Justice Department if you're <laughs> a vice president. Well, the, the president did a pretty good job of attacking uh, a lot of people. Um, I really don't have a reaction to that, to be honest. I don't either. I mean, the, the Nixon, he had done, not done anything. In a lot of ways, it probably would have served his purposes for Agnew to stay in office because then people would have been more reluctant to get rid of Nixon uh, if, if Agnew was going to step into the, into, yeah. into the presidency. Well, he did support him for a while, and then... He didn't, and then he stopped, and he cut him loose. So after this, after that day and the court was over, what happened to Spiro Agnew? Well, I don't know firsthand, but, uh, you know, he was very friendly with uh, Frank Sinatra, and I think Frank Sinatra provided him with funds. Said um, $200,000 loan right out of the box. I read that as well. He then... Uh, uh, Seemingly did some work with Middle Eastern business people. Uh, uh, he wrote a book that uh, was full of junk and crap and lies. Including lies about um, his personal lawyer back in the Baltimore County days. Now this is his memoir, not his novel. Right. His memoir. It was called memoir. Go Quietly or Else. But in the there... Title. In there, he accused his lawyer, George White, who was a very distinguished and very honest Baltimore County lawyer, accused his uh, lawyer of helping him to cover up um, 
And that, that is, he defamed George White. So George White sued him for defamation, asking for sure. $1 in, puni- in damages, but asking for a declaration that he'd actually been defamed. And Agnew finally had to admit that he had defamed George White, that he'd actually told George White that he was guilty of all these offenses. And, and George got, White got to tell the world that that's what Agnew had admitted to him. Agnew is a careless man. Here he had this longtime lawyer, who was prevented because of attorney-client privilege from disclosing publicly that Agnew had admitted to his lawyer that he, in fact, had engaged in this corrupt practice. He went on, I think, to form a consultancy and sold his services internationally and made lots of money and lived in Rancho Mirage right outside of Palm Springs in California. In 1995, get your reaction to this. This happened over in uh, the Capitol. Now, I'm not blind or deaf to the fact that there are critics who feel that this is a ceremony that should not take place. That the Senate, by commissioning this bust, is giving me an honor I don't deserve. No doubt we'll be reading and hearing more criticism along that line in the days ahead. And it deserves, in my opinion, a response. So I would remind those critics that regardless of their personal view of me, this ceremony has less to do with Spiro Agnew than with the office I held, an honor conferred on me by the American people over two decades ago when they elected and re-elected me as Vice President of the United States. Now, we've just been through a period where statues have been torn down because of old history that people don't like. Every vice president gets a statue like this over in the United States Senate as being president of the United States Senate. What Do you have any reaction to whether or not he should have had this, uh, this honor? If it's tradition, okay. But I agree with uh, what Spiro Agnew just said. It's an honor he didn't deserve. He besmirched the office. It's a disgrace that there's a statue to him. Going back, looking at what tripped it again, what tripped the fact, again, he could have gotten away with this. What, what made the difference in the law that people who don't practice law don't understand the grand jury system or all that, or the U.S. attorneys, assistant U.S. attorneys? Well, there are federal laws that make it a serious crime, felony, for a public official to corruptly take money, to, be, to accept bribes or to extort money. And uh, when, when these politicians and public officials do this, uh, they leave a trail. They have, there are witnesses who are giving them money, witnesses who are generating the cash. Then the money goes to the public official. The public official uses the money. There are IRS uh, regulations. And what happens so often is these guys don't get away with it because there are young <laughs> prosecutors, federal prosecutors and state prosecutors, who, whose job it is to find this, and if, in fact, there's a case, to bring it. What's the value of immunity, and how much of it was given in this case? Well, we gave out a fair amount of immunity. Without uh, promising witnesses something in return for their testimony, you're not going to get testimony. You're not going to have people who go to prison for the full length of the prison sentence they deserve and who are then going to give you the information. Uh, You've got to be able to offer them something in return. 
And then further to what Ron was saying, there, there are the laws in place, there are the investigative tools in place, and there are uh, determined, hardworking prosecutors in place. And if they start, and all over the country, before 1973 and certainly afterwards, there have been public corruption investigations that have unearthed and prosecuted and convicted corrupt public officials. And that will continue. How long were you an assistant U.S. attorney? I was three years assistant U.S. attorney, and then I came back as the United States attorney for almost four years. And where did you go to college? Williams. Where did you get your uh, law degree? Harvard. And who were you the clerk for? I clerked for um, uh, Harrison L. Winter on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, and then I clerked for Chief Justice Berger on the Supreme Court. One memory from Chief Justice Berger's experience? He was friendly and... um, I was a nice guy. Ron, Ron Liebman, what did you, how long were you U.S. Attorney, assistant U.S. Attorney? About five or six years. And then what did you do? I went into private practice uh, with a, uh, a law firm in Washington, a small boutique litigation firm. Uh, I, after about a year or so, I moved to a firm uh, then called Patton Boggs & Blow. That became Patton Boggs and is now... Squire Patton Boggs. It's a large corporate uh, law firm with offices in Washington and other places in the United States and across the world. Your greatest frustration when you think back to this experience <laughs> at the time. Do we have any? Uh, um, uh, you know, uh, we were really lucky. We had Elliot Richardson, we had George Bell, we had Barney Skolnick, we had Ron. And we had Pete Tortowitz as the, maybe the best IRS agent ever. We had a bunch of revenue agents like Marvin Case uh, and others. The, the whole team was, we were very lucky in that all these wonderful people were in the right places. Yeah, chemistry was great, and we were young but serious. And the, the, the way that the case evolved and our involvement, Barney's and Tim's and mine and George Bell's with with the Attorney General of the United States, the Deputy Attorney General, the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, in addition to the pride that I have, and I know Tim and the others do, in the job we did, in terms of my development as a lawyer, it was it was an incredible experience. Who's the boss of George Bell at that time? The Attorney General of the United States, Elliot Richardson. What? Well, through the... Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division, there's a hierarchy. What direct line, I mean, thinking of today, what direct line does the President of the United States have to an a, a, a a, a U.S. attorney if they want to? Can they fire him? Uh, well, the U.S. attorneys are presidential appointees. So um, I suppose he could. He could direct the, the way he would do it would be he'd direct the Attorney General uh, to fire him, wouldn't he? Well, didn't our, the, our present president fired the U.S. Oh, yes, attorney, attorney for the Southern, Southern District, District of, New York. of New York? He reached out and did it and Maybe had not. the power to do it. There was a funeral for Richard Nixon. Looking for the date. Um, back in April the 27th, 1994. Just want to show this video. This is the first time that Spiro Agnew had come in contact with the Richard Nixon family and all since he had left. And he had not, I don't know whether he talked to Richard Nixon or not, but 
Here is Bob Dole giving a eulogy and watch for Spiro Agnew. Strong, brave, unafraid of controversy, unyielding in his convictions, living every day of his life to the hilt, the largest figure of our time, whose influence will be timeless. That was Richard Nixon. How American. May God bless Richard Nixon. And may God bless the United States. So what would you two say to uh, young people that are watching this about the practice of law, about our American system of uh, justice? In this case, it worked. In Watergate, it worked. Um, I, I don't agree with Senator Dole about the place of Richard Nixon in history. I think the place he has in history is to show uh, what a corrupt president was and what damage he could do with, to the country with his enemies list with his cover-up, and that uh, the, the system worked in getting rid of him. I think the system not only worked, I feel very strongly that it still works, and it will work, and it will continue to work. Uh, we are a country of laws, and we are a country with a moral fiber and moral backbone, and I feel very strongly that uh, despite a lot of uh, events that are unfolding now, that uh, the system will continue to work. I forgot to ask you where you went to school. I went to a small college at the time called Western Maryland College. It's now called McDaniel. And I went to the University of Maryland Law School. I need to ask you both, after I know you went on and practiced law in your life, what are you doing today? <laughs> I'm writing novels. Are you retired from law? Yes. I'm retired from law, too. Do you miss it? <laughs> if I airbrush out the stress the pain, the need to find clients, I miss it, but I really don't. I had a great run, and it was a wonderful opportunity for me, but it was time to end. It ended. Reliving all of this, I sometimes think to myself that I peaked at 31. <laughs> Our guests have been Tim Baker, former assistant U.S. attorney, and Ron Liebman, same job, in Baltimore, prosecuting Vice President of the United States, Spiro Agnew, thank you very much for bringing us up to date on history. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. 